This is Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Let's get into it. All right, guys, today we've got a very special guest on the podcast. His name is Andrew Claven. He is an international best-selling fiction and nonfiction author, the two-time Edgar Award winner. That's an award that's given out by the Mystery Writers of America. And he's also the host of the Andrew Claven Show on the Daily Wire. So this is a very, very interesting guy, and we got into a lot of this in the show. But he grew up as a secular Jew in New York City, a very intellectual environment, all these types of things. But then he became a Christian at the age of 49. Okay, so he talks about that a lot in his memoir, which we talk about in the show, but we're here to talk about a lot of his new book, right? And his new book is called The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. And so I remember when this was pitched to me, I was super excited to talk to Andrew Clavin just because of a lot of his conservative commentary, but I was like, okay, a book about Jesus and the Gospels and English poets. And like, I I just didn't really get it until I read the book. And then he kind of weaved all those things together to really give you a sense of like, okay, if you're having issues figuring out some things in the gospels and it's maybe because you're not reading them in the right way, or maybe you can inform some of the things that you're reading and with some other things that you do understand, which will help you understand the truth that's being told there and the beauty that's being bestowed. But guys, we talk about, you know, why he got into writing. We talk about his memoir and how he converted uh, to being a Christian from being a secular Jew. We talk about this book, but then we get into a lot of topics about the Daily Wire, how he got started with the Daily Wire, and he kind of gave us a behind-the-scenes look of how the Daily Wire even got started and how he kind of, you know, rode the wave with those guys and is still riding the wave. We talk about conservatism in general. We talk about transgenderism and how that's really one of the most corrosive things that's happening in our modern society. But then at the very end, I thought our interview was over, but he said something about manhood. And I asked him if I could ask him one more question, and I did, and I was so glad that we got to talk about it. We got to talk about masculinity and manhood towards the end, the very, very last question of the show. So guys, you're going to want to make sure you stick around for that, but I'm not going to keep him from you any longer. So without further ado, let's get into it. Andrew Claven, welcome to Undaunted Life, a man's podcast. Thanks kindly. It's good to be here. It is wonderful to meet you because I just got to say, I've had a lot of prolific writers on this show and you may be the most prolific. I swear to goodness, like I can write, but I just hate it. You apparently love it. You have an incredibly uh, prolific career. So as just a general way of introduction for you to anyone in my audience who maybe doesn't know who you are, you've written dozens of books, you've written screenplays, uh, you've really made a, a business of being a very prolific writer and you're one of the most known people in kind of the the crime and suspense drama genre. So if you would, just as a generic place to start, you know, what made you decide that you wanted to become a writer and how'd you kind of get into that genre? You know, I, I wanted to be a writer almost as long as I can remember ever since I stopped wanting to be like a cowboy and an astronaut. Right. Uh, basically, this was, you know, it was the way I communicated with the world. It was the way I saw the world, the books that I read. You know, I, when I was growing up, I didn't have a lot of uh, male role models that I that really appealed to me. I found them in tough guy novels. I found them in Ernest Hemingway novels and Raymond Chandler and Dashiell Hammett. And I just, I can remember to this day uh, a line that uh, Raymond Chandler, the great mystery writer, wrote a character named Philip Marlowe. And he was describing his character. And he said, down, this is where we get the, the phrase mean streets. He said, down these mean streets, a man must go who is not himself mean, who is neither tarnished nor afraid. And I remember thinking, that's the guy I want to be. And so it, it was really important to me. And I guess it just became important to me to then pass that on uh, and tell stories, the kinds of stories that I loved reading. 
Absolutely. And we'll get into some of that. We're going to be focusing mainly today on your nonfiction writing. But right from the beginning here, I'm going to try to make things as awkward as possible. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to make you pick your favorite kid. Okay. So I know you've written a lot of books. I think I counted like 37, 38. There's probably more I missed, right? If you, if you went toes up today and that was it for Andrew Clavin, and you could only leave one book that you've ever written for humanity. I'm making you do it. You got one book to represent you and to represent your work, what you feel the best about. Who's your favorite kid? What are you leaving us? <laughs> well, it is true. They are like your kids, so you don't really have a favorite. But the one I would obviously leave is my memoir, uh, The Great Good Thing, because it tells the story of my life and it sort of tells who I am in the most direct way. Absolutely. Well, I'll just go ahead and say that is the perfect segue because I made it so. So we're going to segue right into The Great Good Thing. So that is your memoir that you wrote back in 2016, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. So just from there, I think people can kind of get the general idea as to kind of what you're writing about in there. But the thing that I'm interested in for you is obviously we talked about your prolific career. This was your first foray that at least that I know of into the world of nonfiction, right? You had mainly stayed in the fiction world. So just kind of take me through what that was like after having such a long and successful year in the fiction realm. Yeah, it was the first time it's a long form nonfiction. I'd written articles and things like that, right. but it was really difficult. I've written now I've written the second nonfiction book. And the thing that I find hardest of all is editing out things. Like what when I finished mm-hmm. um when I finished The Great Good Thing, I handed it to my wife, who's always been my first and best editor. And she said to me, half of this is the best book you've ever written. <laughs> and so I gave her a pen and I said, show me which half. And she did. And I, I literally cut out half the book, which is no pleasant thing to do after you've worked and worked at it. But I couldn't find a way to just stop downloading. Uh, I had so many things to think about, so many thoughts I wanted to communicate. And you're not communicating them in je- like you are in fiction, in gestures and pieces of action. Uh, you're communicating them to directly. So you just want to get everything in there. And uh, it really, really helped to cut it all out. And yet when I wrote the new book, The Truth and Beauty, I did the same thing again. Uh, And when I, when I handed this one to my wife, she literally, I've actually put this in the book. She literally said to me, this, this is so hard to understand that I, I literally start to be afraid you had gone insane. And I said, and I said to her, I said to her, no, I was really calm about it because I knew it was a, a terrific book. I'm really happy with this book. I said to her, no, it's a great book. I just have to cut out all the bad parts. And then I proceeded to do the same thing again. I must have cut out a third of the book to get to what was there already, which was like, it was kind of like carving a statue and seeing the figure in the stone. It was already there and it came out very clearly. But I just seemed to have a problem with nonfiction of, that I have to put it all down and then cut it all out. Right. And I mean, we're going to get more into the stuff you you do with the Daily Wire later, but I'm wondering if for you, because it's this way for me, I'm wondering if it's the same for you. That's why I like the podcast format, because I can just put five or six bullet points on on my notepad and then just flow for 30 or 45 minutes. So for you as a, as a writer, is it is it cathartic for you to kind of be able to flow a little bit uh, with your show and just kind of see where it takes you and just kind of leave the fat on the bone, if you will? Yeah, it, it is cathartic, but I still love the fact that I can, when I bring out a book, it, I have gone over it a hundred times. I know it's what I want to say. And there's so many times when you go on a podcast and you go home and you think like, that wasn't exactly it, right. you know? And if somebody, and people get so angry at you, you know, especially in the political realm, yeah. that when they attack you, 
you know, you know, you can't apologize because that's all that the, my friends on the left are trying to do is get me to uh, put some blood in the water and I'm not going to do it. But sometimes to yourself, you're thinking, ah, you know, I didn't quite say what I wanted to say. At least when I'm writing, I know I can take full responsibility for it. You know? Yeah. I'm my worst critic. When I listen to myself back, not only do I feel like I sound stupid, I'm like, oh my gosh, that, that's totally not the word you meant to say. Did you go to school? Can you even read? So uh, I completely understand. But again, in, in the great good thing, it's a story of you going from not just being a Jew to a Christian, you were an agnostic intellectual Jewish person. And then you became a Christian and you did all this at the age of 49. This wasn't like a high school, you know, church camp experience. Like you had, you had lived a really good and intellectual life up to that point. But in the book, you, you actually describe several experiences in your life where looking back, you now recognize those things as God essentially calling you to himself, like trying to communicate to you. And, And it was like really core tenets of Christianity. And guys, in order to get, you know, the full story, you're gonna have to go buy the book. Don't worry. It will be in the show notes. But there was one story in particular, I guess maybe you can give us some insight into some of those experiences, but specifically one of those experiences was kind of this mystical experience that you had with your wife, Ellen, when she was giving birth to your daughter. So I think that might be a good and very poetic way to kind of encapsulate some of the core parts of that book. Yeah, one of the things about writing this book is when it was over and I read it, I could see God standing next to me. I could see Jesus Christ standing next to me through so many of the even the most difficult parts of my life. It was so obvious. I mean, he had left so many signs. Almost, It was like that old Jim Carrey movie where he says, show me a sign, and there are all these signs all over and he doesn't see them. It was exactly right. like that. And one of the, the biggest experiences, I was uh, an, an agnostic. I was really a practicing atheist. I mean, I really just didn't believe as you say, I was living an intellectual life. I was living in places like New York and LA and and London. I didn't associate with people who were believers. The very word Jesus always felt like somebody had dropped a bug down my back. I just thought like, oh, just leave me alone with that, you know? But when my wife uh, went into labor and she went into a long, you know, 13 hour labor without any drugs, my wife is kind of the Sergeant Rock of labor, you know, she just uh, actually went through it. It was this long, long experience. And then my daughter was born. When I saw her come out, I experienced this uh, incredible uh, sense of love. And I actually had, it's the only really, truly mystical experience I've ever had in my life. I actually felt myself, this love wash through me like a tide and wash myself out of my body into my wife and into this child and then start to move out into what I could see now was infinite love. I could see in front of me, I could actually see it, it was infinite love that I was washing away into. And in terror, basically, uh, in an act of, of just fear, I pulled myself back in, always kind of have wondered what would have happened if I just let go, would I have died, would I have disappeared, what would have happened. But after that moment, it was very, very difficult for me to convince myself that there was nothing beyond. I had actually seen, I had seen it. I had actually seen it. And I'm not a person who hallucinates. I'm not a crazy man. I'm not, I'm not even someone who is very uh, upset with, you know, the kind of, uh, anatomical uh, reality that you face when you're watching somebody give birth. It didn't really bother me at all. So I was not in any kind of dissociative state. It was just the experience of love beyond anything I had felt before. And it made me realize I've had this incredibly fortunate marriage. And it made me realize that this love you feel is actually part of something bigger than yourself. Well, and it's very hard to explain. I was just talking with somebody who's who's very Calvinist in, in their ideas of things and how they were trying to square what a lot of Muslims are going through. Because like one of the fastest growing places for the church and for Christianity is in Iran, where yeah. you can't just have a you know a church on the street corner like I can here in Oklahoma, right? And so when you have Jesus appearing in Muslims' dreams 
and communicating to them in their dreams. You can't put that in a Bunsen burner and heat it up. Like you can't, you know, measure that using, you know, science or psychology or something like that, but it means something. It means that there is a substance that's kind of outside of the matter of the world. And so guys, the great good thing, you have to go and pick that up because we're leaving it very, very short shrift because we got to get to the new book, which is what I want to spend uh, most of our time talking about today. So thank you very much for, our, uh, for sending this my way, but it's called The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point to the Way, uh, point the way to a deeper understanding of the words of Jesus. So I just got to tell you right from the beginning, Andrew, when I read the title, I was like, I already don't get it. I'm like, what, what is this guy going to do for me? Like, I, I, I suck at poetry. When I read poetry, there, you, I could be in a calculus class and feel smarter uh, than whenever I'm sitting trying to read and understand poetry. But anyway, even though you feel like you're talking to a Neanderthal now, I always like giving the author uh, the, the, the breath, I guess, in, in the space to describe the book in their own words. So give us the basic Sparknotes version of what The Truth and Beauty is about. Okay, well, first of all, one of the things that's actually not about is poetry. I, I wanted to write it for a book for people who never read poetry because it's about the lives of these guys and how they develop their thought and their vision and what they put into their poetry. And their lives are hilarious uh, and tragic and and uh, very deep uh, experiences that they had, some of the best stories in all of literature. And the, the thing is that the time that they were living in was a time so much like this one that it is almost uncanny. Uh, things were falling apart religion was falling apart. Science was exploding and people were losing their faith. People were losing their uh, sense of, of moral reality. They were beginning to develop this relative sense that, oh, what one person says is moral, somebody else says is immoral. Uh, they were beginning to question gender roles, not just marriage, but actually, you know, who should be doing what and what you know, why can't everybody just sleep with everybody else? And why should women sleep with fewer people than men? And there was this fight going on, and this will sound familiar, between radical and conservative politics, because there had been this French Revolution, which everybody thought, all the thinkers thought, was going to change the world and bring paradise. Right. And it failed. And, and, you know, only a few of these thinkers were brave enough to say that it had failed. Wordsworth, one of the great poets of the time, looked at this and he was a radical. He went to France. He was participating in parts of the revolution in a small way. And he said, you know, this went, this has gone wrong. Uh, there's terror. They're killing people. It, it started a world war and he changed and he was canceled. I mean, people just started writing poems about what a terrible person he was and what, you know, what an awful thing he had done. So these poets were faced with a, a task that I believe we're faced with today, which was building everything back for a new age. How are you going to do it? Now that you know that science is science and the world doesn't work quite the way that people thought it did, how are you going to have faith? How are you going to build back? How are you going to experience the inner world? your inner world and, and know that it is, you know, that your inner world is not all of reality, but it is part of reality. So in other words, you know, what they started to think was that we are acting in collaboration with God. Our inner reality is a collaboration with God. When you go back to the gospels, and this is why I started writing about this, when you go back with the gospels, you suddenly realize that is exactly what Jesus is telling you. He is saying, you have got to be a branch on the vine. You are not going to produce fruit unless you're a branch on the vine. So today, when somebody says, you know, oh, I have the body of a man, but I'm a woman, and people say, well, he's really a woman, you say, no. <laughs> like, yeah. You may have feelings, but you're not collaborating with reality. You're not collaborating with creation. And what these, you know, it's just a beautiful story because these poets really kind of, they didn't mean to do it. They weren't necessarily believers, some of them, but they just stumbled their way back to gospel wisdom. And I found that by looking at what they said and looking at what they wrote, I knew Jesus better. I got closer to him 
kind of coming in through the back door almost. I just got closer to him in a way I never had. Yeah. Yeah. You came in through the back door kind of like they did into their own faith. And I think about it like when sociology, I saw a headline a few weeks ago where it was like people that don't live together before they get married actually have a uh, lower divorce rate. And it's like shocking. It's almost as if there's a model for this that works better and all those types of things. And and I do want to reiterate something that you, uh, that you said there, obviously this is not a poetry book. It's a book about poets and there is poetry throughout. So guys, if you're scared of poetry, like I am, don't be too scared. It's very accessible, but there was a, a very early point in the book that was very interesting to me. So you're sitting down with your son, Spencer, and you're having whiskey, which by the way, what were you drinking? Do you remember? Yeah, McAllen 12. That's all I drink. Yeah. I had some of that like three days ago. We're going to be best friends. So you're, <laughs> you're sitting there having having a great single malt, some McAllen 12-year-old with the blue box and the gold label. Oh, Everything's well, good yeah. to go. You're having a good time. But you're talking to your son, Spencer, about how you don't quite understand the Sermon on the Mount. And it's just like, it was bothering you, right? And your son said this to you. He said, maybe the problem is that you're trying to understand a philosophy instead of trying to get to know a man and in your head, this was your response to yourself. I recognize this on the instant as the single smartest thing anyone had ever said to me. And that, you know, through the mouths of babes, even though he was an adult at that point, or seemingly adult. Um, but at that point, you decide that you're going to to read the Gospels and to do it in Greek to try to get to know Jesus. Not philosophy, not a certain theology or something like that. So just take us through that process because there's not a whole lot of people that, you know, they would lead them to that type of an action, you know? Yeah. I, well, like I said, you know, when I, when I was talking to him, I was kind of experiencing the fact and telling him about the fact that a lot of things that we quote that Jesus said, we just quote them because we're so used to hearing them and we kind of quote them as if they were, you know, with this kind of serious piety. And you start to think about them and think, well, wait a minute, really? You know, love my enemy? I don't even like my enemy. Do I actually, do I want to love me? Do I want to turn the other cheek or do I want to knock a guy? You know, I, I said to my son, you know, if, if somebody attacked you or, or your mother, I'd kill him, you know, and then I'd bring him back to life and kill him again, you know, just, right. just for the, you know, so, so when we're talking about turning the other cheek, what are you talking about? And when he said this to me, you got to get to know him as a person. Instantly, I thought, yeah, because when you really know a person, like maybe you know your siblings or maybe you know your dad or something like that. Mm -hmm. It's not like you think like, oh, dad has a certain philosophy. What you think is if dad were here, he would say this. You yeah. sort of can see through his eyes a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I realized that that was what I was trying to do. So my process was I did teach myself Greek, although badly. I mean, I did it as, you know, I could read about five sentences a day and translate them. And I read the book without any theology. So I read the gospels, the four gospels without thinking about what Paul said, but without thinking about what the Catholics said, without thinking about what the Protestants said, nothing, just him, you know, just Jesus. And I tried to approach it like I was reading a novel, like you might get to know a character in a novel, uh, or you're reading a memoir and you might know, get to know him or a biography, you know, you're reading about General Grant and you think, oh, now I see who General Grant was. I just tried to read it like that. And as I was reading it, that's when all these lines from this poetry started to come back to me. And I thought, oh, I get it. I see what he sees a little bit. I start to see a little bit of what he sees because it was the same thing these poets saw, namely that you are in a world where you are collaborating with the spirit. And, and a lot of the, the Christianese, as they sometimes call it, 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 you get deaf to it after a while. You hear it so right. much, you don't you don't experience it anymore. And so that was that was my process. I mean, some guy, one, one guy that I sent to you, know, when you have a book, you send it out hoping people will put an endorsement on the back. Right. One Catholic I sent it to um, uh, told me that I was a heretic. <laughs> I said, he wouldn't, put, he wouldn't give me a blurb. And I said, you know, it's it's really not theology. I, you can still have your theology. This was just my experience of reading the book in this specific way. 
Well, Andrew, it was an encouragement to me because I remember I had the same feeling reading your book as I did when I read Beautiful Outlaw by John Eldridge back in the day. He was was the writer of Wild at Heart. I remember. And he was talking about the the personality of Jesus. And when you read through the Gospels deadpan, it's just like, oh, this is a serious guy being serious all the time. But it's like, no, he probably was cracking jokes and he was probably way more aggressive than you gave him credit for. And so the the next time I go read the the Gospels, I kind of skim. You know what I mean? Because uh, it's like, I've heard this before. I know what he's about to say. I know what yeah. happens. I, I know the ending of the story. And so you're losing some of that juice that you can squeeze out of the story. So I yep. definitely appreciated that. And and I guess the other thing I really appreciated about the book, Andrew, is that a major theme was truth and not just truth. It was capital T truth. So you elucidate that by referring to Pontius Pilate, you know, asking Jesus what is truth and the opening line of the play Hamlet, you know, Shakespearean play, you know, where the lead character says who's there. And so there's one quote, and I want to get you to, to give me a little bit more on this from the book. It's the meaning of Jesus's life is the meaning of everything. His truth is truth. His right is right. His beauty is beauty. These are human ideas, truth, right, beauty. These are ways we humans experience the indescribable logos. But how do we know our truth, truths are true. Our right is right. Our beauty is beautiful. We know by knowing Jesus. Now, breaking news to you, Andrew Clavin, I've heard that truth is bigoted, right? That there's no such thing as capital T truth. There's only your truth and my truth and collective truth and justice. And you know, that's what I've heard. But here you are saying that truth can be summed up in the life of Middle Eastern Jew. Help me. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, that's right. I mean, this is part of the idea that your inner truth is either sovereign, you can turn yourself into another sex instantaneously, or it, it's meaningless. You, you may think what you're doing is right. You may think it's right to be free, but other people think it's right to hold slaves. And so they're just, they have their system and you have yours. So we have lost touch with this fact that when John Keats, one of these great poets, wrote the line, beauty is truth and truth is beauty, That's all you know on earth and all you need to know. He wasn't saying everything you find pretty is pretty. He wasn't saying, oh, you like pink flowers and I like yellow flowers. He was saying that your body, your, your entirety, your mind, your reason, your heart, your flesh, everything about you is a God made machine for seeing the truth of life. Hmm. But you, you can go astray, right? And you know, it's a funny thing because you know you can get things wrong. You know you can see a dragon and there's no dragon there. You know you, you've fallen in love, but you weren't in love. It was just a, an infatuation. You know, you, you might have thought something was right and later on you find it's wrong. If you can get things wrong, you can get them right. So how are you going to test that experience? And what, and one of it is, one way is through the, this experience of intense rightness that you feel, but also you need a guide and a model. And the smartest of all these poets, and maybe one of the smartest men who ever lived, was Samuel Coleridge. He wrote uh, the uh, Rhyme of the Ancient Mariner, where we get phrases like water, water everywhere, and not a drop to drink, and a sadder but a wiser man. He's the guy who made up all those lines. Mm-hmm. He was the most brilliant man alive in his time. He knew virtually everything. Of all of them, he was the one guy who, from the very start through to the end, was a believer. He was the one guy, and he inspired each person. Each person he talked to changed dramatically. And it was kind of funny because Coleridge was a, 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 a drug addict. He was a broken man in so many ways, but he was just a genius. And one of the things he said was Jesus is, he called it, uh, the sensorium, a word I'd never heard before, but it means the model of how we experience things, the model of how the world should come to us. And listen, the proof is in the of the puddings in the eating. If you, in fact, start to understand what Jesus says and start to live accordingly, your life becomes more joyful. 
And this is an experience that most believers who are honest believers have. Uh, your life becomes, and when I say joyful, I don't mean happy. I don't mean you're walking around with a yellow right. smiley face. I mean, you are just involved with life in a much deeper, much more uh, live way. It's what the poets called gusto. They call it gusto. You know, you live with gusto. And, and I think that, that is, that's the proof of it. You know, I don't think that anything else, any, there is no other religion that basically takes the creation and us and puts them together into one person. You know, the Jews, God love them, they sort of see Moses talking to the burning bush. Uh, the Muslims have a God who is absolutely above even reason. He doesn't even have to respond to reason. Mm-hmm. We have a God we're in touch with. And so Jesus is the representation of the complete communication of God and us. Remember, you know, somewhere in the Bible it says no one has ever seen God. God, the Father, is beyond our comprehension. We cannot put that in our mind. We can only put into our mind God as human beings experience him. That's what Jesus is. I think the big thing you brought up there, Andrew, is testing. Whenever people bring their worldviews to the fore, it's like, okay, where can we test this? Where can we ground this? And I love that expression, intense rightness. I swear to God, I'm 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 surrounded by intense rightness from people that keep saying dumb things. But I do want to get into a quote here. This is my absolute favorite quote from the entire book. So I want to get a little bit more on it. So here it is. As radicals today condemn Thomas Jefferson for holding slaves without realizing they learned their hatred of slavery at Jefferson's knee. So the French slaughtered priests in the love of liberty the church had instilled in them age by painful age. The radical always thinks his pristine morality is what another of Burke's opponents, Thomas Paine, called common sense. But that isn't right. Morality is fashioned in the forge of centuries. It's a thing of iron that will melt away in too much heat. Aside from the fact that I could put all of my brain fibers together and try to write a paragraph so beautiful and I wouldn't be able to do it. So I kind of hate you for that. But what a point, what a point that you made there. Because again, we we think we're the first people to come up with these ideas. And I'm using that term we, you know, colloquially or, or collectively. That's what we think, right? But here we are. We're, we're, we're judging these great men of the past or these great ages of the past by our modern sense of virtue and morality. And that's one thing that I think that's interesting for someone that's read as much as you have. You recognize just like it's old hat that this isn't new. None of this is new. You talked about it earlier in this show. So give me a little bit more behind that because I thought that was that was a major center point hinge point for me for your entire book. Well, you know, they used to call the, the West Christendom because everybody was a Christian and you could tell you were in Christendom because if you weren't a Christian, they, they tended to kill you. You know, it was not, it was not, it was not like they were uh, gentle, meek and mild. This was the religion of this time. But what they didn't realize was the religion was shaping them, even as they thought uh, they were living it out. You know, Jesus talks about this. He says, they, they say, well, can we get divorced? And Jesus says, you know, Moses gave you laws to let you get divorced because your hearts were hard, but you really shouldn't get divorced because what God has put together, no man tears asunder. I, I, I compare Jesus to a nuclear blast in the book. I, he, he destroys everything that was there before. And at first there's all these miracles and everything is, you know, all this kind of weird stuff is going on. And then mutations start to happen. Uh, People start to respect freedom. People start to say, well, kings don't have entire power. No one had ever said that before. People start to say, uh, well, you know, maybe women are people too. Maybe women have rights. Maybe men have rights. Maybe people have equal rights. All of these things are a result of this explosion of understanding that came with Jesus. We think we just, they just dropped on us like the gentle rain from heaven. But no, you know, these are things that over slow periods of time, you know, it's interesting. 
uh, during some of the uh, war on terror, people would say, well, what the Muslims need is they need a reformation. And I would think, you know, the reformation was one of the most bloody times in human history. Mm, and what right. happened was after one of the worst wars Europe had ever experienced, the 30 year war, people started to say, you know, this doesn't look good for Christians to be killing each other with this kind of cruelty. So in other words, they were comparing their actions to a standard. That standard is not the human standard. That standard is not a standard that existed in Rome. It didn't exist in Greece. It only existed where there were Christians. And so that reaction, you know, people will say, well, Christians were violent. Yes, they were. And then they start to say, how does that violence you know, comport with this philosophy right. of the God I know and love? That's how you change over time. And the fact is we live in time. You know, we live in time. We are not, you know, hopefully people are going to be better than us 100 years from now or, or not. But ultimately, the things we believe shape us over time. And so these guys who, uh, you know, Edmund Burke was the guy who said this in, in this time in the Romantic era. He basically said, if you give up your traditions, you're giving up the wisdom of the ages. You're giving up the wisdom of the dead. There's going to be change. Things are going to be changed. But if you change in in keeping with your traditions, if you keep down the road you're traveling on, you will get to the place you're supposed to get to. And that, I think, is is built into the Gospels as well. When I think we have this horrible modern habit of straw manning everything and yeah. steel manning nothing. And so it's very easy to look at the actions of Christians that are acting outside of the dictates of the gospel or any type of a biblical ethic and being like, you see those Christians over there? It's like, no, no, no. In that moment, they're not acting like a Christian. Like people are That's like, oh, right. well, wasn't Hitler a Christian? It's like, you <laughs> dummy, read a book. Like, come on, be be more Andrew Clavin, would you? But uh, the thing about it is I absolutely really, really enjoyed this book, The Truth and the Beauty. Guys, you got to go pick up a copy. It's going to be in our show notes. I love books that are short but dense. It's like a Ben Shapiro book, which is our segue into talking about The Daily Wire because yeah. you've obviously been a part of The Daily Wire for several years now. I'm sure all your uh, woke liberal friends really love that about you, that you're a part <laughs> of The Daily Wire. But I guess just from the beginning, how did you even get hooked up with those guys over there? Because you didn't really need The Daily Wire. You were, you were a successful you know, writer. You could have done your own thing. So how'd you guys get connected? Yeah, well, I started doing uh, satires, video satires for a friend of mine when he started a place called PJTV, and he he showed me the videos that he were doing. It was very serious conservative uh, videos, and I said, you know, I'd like to do one of those, but do it like Monty Python. I want my videos to just be hilarious. And he said, okay, and he let me do it, and they were very popular, and it became sort of a, a second career. So... Ben and Jeremy came to me, Ben Shapiro and Jeremy Boring, who runs the, the Daily Wire. They came to me and they said, would you do some videos for a project we're starting? And they started a project that we did that it was, was not the Daily Wire, and it did very well. And then we all got fired. The guys who were giving us the money just said, we don't want to do this anymore. And they fired us. And Jeremy said to me, I'm going to go get some more money, and I'm going to build this thing myself the way I want to build it. And so I said, sure, you know, I'm here. You know where to find me. I'm sitting here writing, you know, just call, give me a call. And he did. It took him about six months and he came back with a, a passel of money. And it was me and Ben and Jeremy sitting in Jeremy's pool house, the changing house by his pool in L.A. And we had a little card table with a microphone on it and a camera. And Ben would do like a 20 minute podcast and I would do a 15 minute podcast. And. The, the entire thing about it was that it was going to be different than other conservative venues is it was going to be actually capitalist because mm, 
Right. Leftists, socialists are great at capitalism. They make movies, they make us pay us for their propaganda. You know, it's mm-hmm. amazing. But we are always being funded by some billionaire who has a, a, a uh, you know, a point of view and we have to follow that point of view. And we said, no, we're going to get sponsors and we're going to make this make money. Well, Ben became so successful so quickly that we all kind of rode his coattails uh, and the thing just exploded. So I, I literally went from being in uh, this pool house talking to 15 people on a microphone on a card table to being in this elaborate television studio that looked as good as any of the television studios I've been in in my life, right. uh, talking to a great many more people than that. And so it was just, it was a really, uh, a real experience. I mean, it was a really different experience than anything I'd ever had, still is. And uh, I, I enjoyed every minute of it. The guys are great. Uh, we would just argue and yell at each other and, you know, try to bring our ideas together. Uh, ben and I got into a couple of arguments. So, you know, I, I love the guy. We got in a couple of arguments so loud that the, the women would actually call us up. You'd go home. They say, "Are you all right?" And I go, "Yeah, why?" You know, <laughs> this, is, this is how Ben and I talk to each other. You know, it's, not, it's nothing. But it really was a just a wonderful uh, formation experience, and and it's been great ever since. Well, I kind of want to talk about how you all get along because we have Andrew Claven, Jeremy Boring, Ben Shapiro, Matt Walsh. Candace Owens, Michael Knowles. Yeah. One thing that you all have in common is y'all are really, you have really small personalities and you don't have big opinions. But it's funny, it's like, obviously I'm, I'm being sarcastic. You guys have big personalities, big opinions, you know, big platforms, all the things. How do you all get along? Because we get to see the, you know, the Daily Wire backstage and a lot of guys that listen to the show have Daily Wire uh, subscriptions and all that. And it seems like y'all are having fun sparring yeah. with each other politely, but I just assume, you know, you get into those knockdown drag outs. So how do y'all, how do y'all coalesce all that together? Because even just you being, you know, an outspoken advocate of, of Christianity now, even though you were a secular Jew, how does that jive with Ben Shapiro being, yeah. you know, a, a very religious Jew? Can you take me through all that? Yeah, it's been, I mean, mostly it's having a sense of humor. I mean, for, for me sitting around with a bunch of guys that, that I disagree with, in the small ways, but agree with in big ways. I mean, we're all conservative. We all believe in freedom. We all believe in God. We all believe that, you know, God has a moral plan and a moral structure of, of the world. To sit around with a bunch of guys like that and drink scotch and smoke cigars and yell at each other is one of my favorite things in life. I mean, it's like, you know, it's like I will wake up for I will show up for that every single day. And and so it's it's been utterly great. I mean, I cannot think of a single time we had a genuine uh argument. We've had many, many big arguments, but never an argument that had any kind of viciousness to it, uh, where, where it was personal, where I hate you or anything. It's, I don't think it's happened one time. Uh, what we have had is just differences of opinions and the faith that in arguing about them, we would get a hearing, you know, it's like we, the guy, other guy would hear what I was having to say and would tell me honestly what he thought. And again, to me, I'll, I'll show up for that every single day. It's one of my favorite things in life. Uh, still, you know, we kind of live, we've now kind of moved to different cities, but whenever we're in the same city, I love it when we get together and have cigars and just uh, scream and yell at each other. It's a beautiful thing. And it helps you, it helps you find out where you're wrong which is great. Right. You know? <laughs> right. like, well, the thing is, is, the reason why you're comfortable sparring is because you have some humility, but you also have some things that you feel very strongly about that are grounded in something real. You, right. you don't have your feet planted firmly in midair. I know I'm stealing that quote from somebody, but the thing that I think I like the most about the daily wire, because I was a, you know, absorber of content of y'all's for years and then became a member and all that. It's because 
as a company, seemingly you all don't just sit around and lament the culture wars. You fight them, right? Yeah. You, and you don't just fight them by being defensive. You fight them by going on the offensive. So you have a publishing wing now. You know, there's a lot's been made about the movie company just in the last couple of weeks. Jeremy's Razors, right? You got a razor yeah, company because <laughs> Harry's went full douchebag on you. And like, I like that y'all are pushing back because conservatives have always been the people that were going to be polite and quiet and sit back until they absolutely had to lash out. And the problem was, is in a lot of the culture wars, the war was over. The conservatives wake up and they're like, wait a minute, I never even put on my armor and my sword. And it's like, yeah, the war has passed you by and you decided that no hills were worth dying on. So talk me through that because that's a bold move, Cotton, to have the Daily Wire really pushing back in the culture wars, isn't it? This is the most gratifying thing about the experience to me because the way I became a conservative, I was a liberal. I was a you know liberal Jewish you know coastal guy. And I moved to England because I got sick and tired of political correctness. And I spent most of the 90s in London with my family. And I didn't really know that my mind was changing. I was just away from American politics, so I wasn't experiencing it. I came back, and shortly after I came back, 9-11 happened. And I'm sitting watching television, and David Letterman, the comedian, the late night, he was at the time the late night comedian, he came on and he said, I have to ask, think out loud for a minute and ask myself, why do they hate us? And I thought, what, who cares? They're, right. they're, not, they're essentially Nazis they're supposed to hate us. You know, if, if we're not hated by guys who, who think like the Islamists think, we're not, we're doing something wrong, you know? And this was the first time I started to say something terrible happened to the culture while I was gone. Well, it, the difference was being gone, I saw the results. You know, you know, when something happens slowly, you don't always see it. And I started to realize that the people I agreed with now were all on the right, including Rush Limbaugh. Like I, I, I was in England, I heard about this terrible guy, Rush Limbaugh. And I turned him on. I thought, hey, I'd like him. You know? yeah, right. <laughs> so, so I realized my mind had changed. And I started going to, um, this is now tw 20 years ago and more, I started going to conservative meetings and saying, you know, you guys have let the culture slip. You guys have lost, have lost, we lost our country at the movies. You know, we lost it in publishing. We lost it in music. And they would look at me, so help me. They would look at me like, you're, you're cute, but I don't know what you're talking about. You know, it's kind, right. it's kind of cool that you work in Hollywood, but I have no idea. You know, that's kind of nice. Let's bring on the guys going to talk about, you know, uh, you know, uh, capitalism and, and the things we really care about. Right. It's, it's taken 20 years, but now people have started to get it. They've started to get the fact that you cannot be hammered ceaselessly with propaganda and not have it change the, the nature of this country. What's happened when you, when you hear people talking about, I mean, I, I know I've brought this up a couple of times only because it drives me nuts, but when you, you know, you hear people saying that men can become women uh, and that should, and then should be allowed to compete in women's sports. When you hear people complaining Teachers complaining that they're not allowed to talk to kindergartners about their uh, homosexual sex life. You go like, okay, <laughs> so something has happened because in the old days, you'd have been hanged for that, you know, and like right. that's, you know, going near. And when you say you can't do that to my child, they say, well, the FBI is going to investigate you as a terrorist. No, you know, something really bad has happened to the culture and we need to take it back. And the only way to take it back is to build a culture of your own. I worked in Hollywood for years. You are not going in and convincing those people to change their minds. That is not happening. That is not a happening thing. At no point are they going to go like, yeah, you know, Donald Trump really had it right. You know, that's, that is not a thing that's going to happen. You have to build your own things. And that means that the 
billionaires, the uh, right-wing billionaires who give their money to oil development and to banking and all that have got to start thinking about giving some of that money to movie studios and to publishing houses and to uh, means and to schools, means of communication, because you've got to shape people to understand freedom. You know, we were talking before about the influence over time of ideas. Well, if, if you're just hearing these crazy ideas for the last, you know, what is it, 60, 75 years, that shapes this country and it has shaped this country until we've gone a little insane and we need to start shaking it back. You know, you'll notice the words culture war. They only come up in the media when we fight back. You know, if they go in and try to tell, 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 if they go in and a teacher tries to tell your son that he's really a little girl, right? And we say, stop that. They say, ah, you're fighting the culture war. Well, no, you know, we're fighting back in the culture war. This is a defensive, this is a rear guard action in which we hope to take back the territory of freedom and, and sanity and morality, you know? And so, uh, that's what got me into this in the first place. And the fact that now the Daily Wire is making movies and we're just getting started publishing books, uh, it, it's just a, it's, it makes my heart sing. It really does. I mean, it's something I have worked on my whole life, uh, the culture, being in the culture, telling stories that matter, telling stories that are true and stories that are not false, which I think is really important. Uh, and to have it be happening at this level uh, is just enormously gratifying to me. I, I can't tell you. It's just a, a beautiful thing to see. It sounds like it, and it seems like you're in the right spot. And the thing is, is here at Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness. And what it used to be was equipping people, not for us, but in general, it seemed like culture was like equipping men to recognize darkness. Mm. But then it was like, you recognize it now, what do you do? Right. And so it's like, now it seems like there's more people that are moving in the direction of like, no, we are going to actively push back against these things. That's why someone like Ron DeSantis, he seems to just keep winning. You know, when he signs that, that bill in, into law, he's like, go ahead. I'm in a, he doesn't say this, but he's in a win-win situation right now. If you sue him, he's on the side that's defending parents. And if you don't sue him, he gets to protect kids. And so it's like, go ahead, throw your, your, your biggest flaming arrows at me right now. I don't care. That's why I like what he's doing so much, but even to maybe pull out even a little bit further, just let's talk about conservatism in general in the United States, maybe a little bit philosophical, but I know you'll, you'll appreciate that. What do you feel like the current state of conservatism is right now in America? Because for me as a conservative, I'm a little concerned about 2024 because I'm concerned about Trump hopping back in the race. He, he lost a race before January 6th. And regardless of what you think of January 6th, he is forever stained with that now. And so it's like, the only thing that could galvanize Democrats and leftists right now is orange man, orange man, bad. And yeah. so it's like, and he's not really a dyed in the wool conservative. He just kind of does conservative things. So there's a lot to be concerned about that is outside of my control. But what do you think the current state of conservatism is overall in the United States? Well, I think that conservatism took a wrong turn. It was really during the Reagan era, though it wasn't Reagan's fault, when it started to empty itself of moral values and say that it was really about business. It was really about uh, capitalism was the important thing. You want to make a lot of money. Uh, the pursuit of happiness didn't mean the pursuit of spiritual happiness, which is what it's supposed to mean, the pursuit of virtue, which is what makes you happy. It's being virtuous that makes you happy. Um, it was about, you know, you could build a business. You could, you know, we want to be free. We started talking about free speech uh, as if it were an unlimited idea. Of course, there's always some speech that is, you know, I, I mean, children shouldn't be looking at pornography. Frankly, no one should really be looking at pornography. Uh, there are plenty of things that you can censor. Uh, and so we kind of gutted conservatism of its moral meaning, uh, except when we attack people for their sex lives. And and my feeling is, you know, like, I don't, I don't care what your sex life is. I truly do not. You know, I've worked in the arts my whole life. Half the people I know have 
I'm sure are doing incredibly kooky things behind closed doors. Maybe they, they shouldn't do that. Maybe that's going to get them in trouble with God, but it's not going to get them in trouble with me. I'm here to just do my work and do my, and be my, be the friends of people I'm friends with. But, but once you come out of your room, once you come out and say, this is a good thing, or you come out and say, this should be celebrated, or you come out and say, this should, you know, this should be, uh, if, if you don't celebrate this, you should be knocked off Twitter or knocked off Facebook. Then I have a problem. Then you are in the public square and I have a right to fight back and to talk back. And so when one of the problems I think we have with conservatism, you know, I say this to people all the time. You know, the funny thing about uh, Donald Trump was he had a very, very good presidency, but he wasn't a very good man. And I think you have to keep both those things in mind. Right. He lost because people disliked him and people disliked him for some fair reasons, which is that he treated people disrespectfully. He treated people who deserve respect without respect. And, and, and I think that that's the thing that Ron DeSantis has. He stands up for what he believes. He is immovable. He knows where, his, uh, where he's going, but he doesn't talk to people like they're dirt, you know, and he doesn't, uh, right. you know, he doesn't, and, and he's a statesman. You know, you got to be a, you know, part of being a politician is being a politician. Right. And so when people would say of Trump, well, he's not a politician, you think, well, yeah, but that's his, that's your skill set for being a politician. You know, it's like, it's like saying I like Clavin's books because he's not a writer. No, you know, that right. is my skill set. You know, so so I think that you're absolutely right. I think Trump was a necessary figure. I think he changed the game for the better. I think he did a wonderful thing. And I think if he could do it, if he had it in him to do it, he should say, you know, Ron DeSantis is the guy to carry on my legacy. And I think it would really be a helpful thing for him to do. Everybody I know who knows him says he's not going to do that. He's going to run. But there's still a lot of time between now and that election. Right. And the thing is, if he decides not to run, I don't see him endorsing Ron DeSantis. I see him endorsing his son or his, or his daughter. That could be. And, and then now MAGA has a different thing to focus on. And right. Yeah. And, so it's, and conservatives don't really have, or Republicans in general, don't really have the ability to, to you know, filter off or splinter off votes, right? Because that's what happened a little bit to Hillary Clinton in 2016 because Bernie Sanders voters said, ah, screw you guys, you screwed us, I'm going to stay home and they ended up not being so great for him. But, you know, last question of the day because I know we're running out of time and there's a lot of other stuff that we can talk about, but there were some things in your new book that kind of hinted at this and you said some things earlier in this conversation that made me think about it as well. But another big subject that we're dealing with right now as conservatives or just as, as people in general is the transgenderism issue and how it's manifesting, especially in the lives of children. And I heard a report, it may have even been on, on the Daily Wire, the Morning Wire, where there are teachers in certain uh, districts in the country that are hearing students in the hallways saying, hey, have you chosen yet? And what they're, what they're referring to is, have you chosen your gender yet? Like we're figuring out, you know, what game we're going to play at recess. So I feel like that is one of the things, and, and I've made this comment before and people think I'm crazy. Transgenderism is the last thing is the last thing that's kind of sort of outside the Overton window before we get to pedophilia being this normal thing. Absolutely. Let's right. talk about, because if, if you're seven years old and you can pick your gender, why can't you pick your sexual partner? But I don't want to take any of your steam. Talk to me a little bit more about that subject and how it's so potentially corrosive for us. Well, this is, I, I said on my show, I think it was last uh, Friday, I, I said that this is the mask of tolerance over the face of evil, because I think most of us believe in live and let live. It's a very American thing. You just don't care what other people are doing uh, in their personal lives. You know, you're not here to, I'm not here to judge other people. I, that's not my, that's not my thing. I'm not here to tell them what to do if they don't ask me. If they ask me, I will tell them. Right. 
once you come out into the public square, once you start talking to children about these things, you are actually committing an act and acts can be responded to, right? So a, a person who tells a child uh, that he is not the gender that he is, is committing an act of evil. That's not, that's not, there's nothing unclear about that. There's nothing cloudy about that. He is uh, bringing confusion to somebody uh, as, as that person is trying to establish himself in the world. It is pr natural, normal, right, healthy, and moral for people to form families between a man and a, based on a man and a woman and to want their children to do the same. That is basically the, the whole uh, business of physical life is to continue the race through relationships that give that child the best chance to thrive, which is having a mother and a father and wanting that child to then go on and become a mother or a father. To say to somebody, to, to have a child who comes to you at some point and says, you know, I can't do that. Maybe I, my sexuality is different. Well, I hope you would treat that child with kindness and love, whatever sure. that means to you. However, to go to a child and say, oh, no, you don't want to do that. I'm not your parent, but I'm going to tell you, is already an act of pedophilia. It's already an act of child abuse. It, it, is, it is disgustingly evil. And, and you're absolutely right that the fact that they have talked their way this far into darkness is, is simply a function of the fact that we didn't stop them. We didn't know how to fight back. And this is why I get very... Uh, frustrated with conservatives who don't want to talk about values. You know, you don't have to talk about uh, going to church. You don't have to talk about any of that. Although, I, I, actually, I'm kind of in favor of that. I'm, I, I believe that we lost the fight when they took God out of school. I think that that was when we lost the fight. We should have fought back against that right there. Mm -hmm. so, so this is like they're using our tolerance which is leaving people alone to live their lives, to mask evil, which is them inserting themselves into the lives of vulnerable people with a foul and, uh, and slavery-inducing ideology. If you lose control of yourself, if you lose control of your sexuality and your lusts and your desires, if you lose control of your identity and you can no longer tell that your body is something given to you by God, which comes along with responsibilities as well as privileges, if you lose that, you are no longer fit to be free. And that is what they want. That is always, always their main idea. They want to get rid of reason because it keeps you free. They want to get rid of families because families teach you to be free. They want to get rid of sexual restraint because sexual restraint helps keep you free. All of these things are about getting rid of freedom. And the reason they want to get rid of freedom is because they think they, they're smarter than we are and can run everything much better than we can. And right. and I just I just think that you have to understand that sexuality is something that makes everybody very upset. You know, it's a very emotional topic, but the real topic is freedom. The real topic is liberty. And that is what they're after. Everything they do, because they don't, you know, it's funny. They don't care that what they say doesn't make sense. Right. They say, yeah. they, you know, they say women and men are exactly the same, but a man can become a woman. You say, well, if they're exactly the same, how would you even know if you became a woman? You know, it right. doesn't make any sense at all. They don't care because reason is the enemy because reason keeps you free. So all of this stuff is about power and uh, just the same as climate change is about power. Uh, every every emergency, every time they say it's a crisis, it's a catastrophe, it's an emergency. It's all about give me more power. And right. so and so this is this is truly bad. And the only hopeful thing I can say about it is parents are striking back. Simple reason is striking back. The the moral heart of humankind is not going to buy into this. So now the fight's begun. Now the fight is on. I mean, up until this point, I always felt like I was kind of a voice in the wilderness saying, you got to stop this stuff. Uh, but now I don't feel like that at all. I feel like, you know, everybody gets it. It's, it's time. 
Right. And Andrew, to the conservatives that don't want to talk about values, you say you would just ask them if, if we get rid of conservative values, what are we conserving exactly? Right. Tax policy, like capitalism, like right. there are things out there that are a little bit more important than those two things that are also important. But Andrew, we could go a million different places with this, but we are out of time. I know you got more of these to do to try and push the book, but that's all for me. Is there anything else you want to get off your chest? No, I, I really appreciate talking to you. And that last thing you said, that it takes courage. It takes manhood is really the word we're, we're all looking for. Uh, you know, we can't do without it. It is the first virtue because without it, there are no other virtues. And we can't keep silent and we can't just let it go by. We have to do it. Andrew, could I petition you to ask you one more question? Yes, because I, that's, I wanted to ask you about that, but yeah. I want to be cognizant of your time. So tell the person that just got bumped that I'm so sorry and they can fight me for it if they want to. Manhood is what we talk about here all the time because we are focused. We're a men's ministry. We're focused on men. This audience is overwhelmingly men. There is obviously a tremendous attack on masculinity. Masculinity in and of itself is considered to be toxic, whatever that means. And yet Will Smith can go up and quote unquote defend his wife that he's cuckolding and, and watching her get banged by other men. Yeah, but yeah. he goes up and smacks Chris Rock for saying an incredibly PG joke. And all of a sudden that's like, yeah, that's defending your woman's honor. It's like, wait a minute. That sounds like toxic masculinity to me if I use your definition. But masculinity is obviously under attack. And I think that's because people that fight on the other side of real morality and real virtue, they know that if the men are strong, the men will fight back. But if the men are milk toast, and if the men are weak, and if they're men without chess, as C.S. Lewis would talk about, and if they're, they're men without any of that fire in the middle, they can just keep pushing because you're not going to push back and they know that. Am I off my rocker? No, you're absolutely right. I mean, you know, the thing is, I know all kinds of men who are manly. Some of them are little dweebs, uh, little nerds who work at computers. Some of them are soldiers and, uh, you know, uh, Navy SEALs who can kill you with a look. All kinds of different men. The one thing they all share, the two things they all share are courage and integrity. Uh, integrity means that you are who you say you are, you will do what you say you do, and you will not back down when you know you're right. That is what integrity is. Courage is having the courage to actually put that into action, to set, to speak when you have something to say, to not drop your voice, to not whisper, to not stand back. I, I know, like I said, I know plenty of people. Some of those guys could pick up a pool table and throw it through a window. Some of them can hardly get out of bed in the morning, but they have that courage and integrity and you know they're men. You know, this is something, and whenever you say this stuff, they say, well, women can do this too. No, no. <laughs> this is a thing that men do is they stand where they stand and you can't push them off that dime. And and, and like I said, you can look like anything, you can be built like anything, you can have, do anything for a living. But if you are willing to be who you say you are, which first of all, makes you consider who you are. It mm -hmm. makes you think about who you are. It makes you make sure that your morality makes sense. And you know, the, is the one thing I said here the same as the thing I said here? That's what integrity is. It's everything fitting together. And then have the courage to show that integrity to the world. I mean, I think that really is, um, you know, what, you know, it really is what all of this is about. You know, they always talk about gentle Jesus, meek and mild. I would say, show me one phrase in the in the gospel where Jesus says anything even remotely nice. You know, they, yeah, they, right. the, the greatest empire on earth came and said, we're going to kill you if you don't back down. And he just stood there and he brought that empire down around his ears simply, simply by standing there, you know. That, that is what men do. And I think that um, this idea that we have to be belligerent, this idea that we have to you know, beat people up when we disagree, all of that, all of that is nonsense. You simply have to do, be who you say you are, do what, you're gonna, what you say you'll do, and have the courage to show that to the world. 
Hey, you know what? I think we may have come up with the Daily Wire's next podcast, the Toxic Masculinity Podcast with Andrew and Kyle. So uh, I think that we can, we'll pitch it to Jeremy and see if we can uh, use some of that razor money to to buy some more microphones. But hey, I really appreciate uh, all the, the latitude you've given us for this conversation. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Andrew Clavin. Thank you for coming on on Daunted Life of Man's podcast. Great talking to you. Thanks a lot. There you go, guys. I hope you enjoyed my interview with Andrew Clavin. I know I did, but before we let you go, we are going to do a quick resilience boost. At Undaunted Life, our mission is equipping men to push back darkness with content that forges spiritual, mental, and physical resilience. So here are the links I've got for you today. The first is a link to the book that we talked about in this show, The Truth and Beauty, How the Lives and Works of England's Greatest Poets Point the Way to a Deeper Understanding of the Words of Jesus. We also have a link here to his memoir, The Great Good Thing, A Secular Jew Comes to Faith in Christ. And then if you want any other information about Andrew, it's going to be on his website, so we've got that link for you as well. All right, guys, thanks so much for listening to the show. We do appreciate it wherever you're listening to this. Please subscribe, rate, and leave us a positive five-star review. If you want me to come speak on your podcast or live at your event, just shoot me an email to info at undaunted.life. That's I-N-F-O at undaunted.life. Follow us on Instagram and like us on Facebook and check out our website for everything else, including how to donate to keep more content like this coming your way. Just go to www.undaunted.life. And we also want to thank the band August Burns Red for allowing us to use their music for our content. The music on this podcast is our song Cut the Ties, which is off their 10th anniversary re-recording of their album, Leveler. The links are in the description. I'm your host, Kyle Thompson. Remember, keep pushing back darkness, keep forging spiritual, mental, and physical resilience, keep seeking the Lion of Judah.